This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Hollywood Wolfpack with Kaya Alexander, featuring in-depth interviews and insights with professionals in the entertainment business. Get everything you need to navigate your above-the-line career right here. This podcast is often recorded live in front of Kaya students in the Entertainment Business School. You can find out more at entertainmentbusinessschool.com. Hollywood Wolfpack is the new face of entertainment business wisdom. Enjoy the show. All right. Hi, and welcome, everybody. I'm Kaya Alexander, your host of the Hollywood Wolfpack podcast. I'm here today with my special guest, Chris Monfett. I'm so excited that Chris is in the house with us. I can barely contain myself. Let me tell you about him. He began his career in entertainment journalism, writing for popular sites such as IGN and G4. He made the leap to features and TV with four seasons of the time-traveling drama 12 Monkeys for Sci-Fi. He continued on to Fox's flagship 911 before joining Star Trek Picard for seasons two and three as a co-EP. He's written for TV, comics, and features for nearly a decade in the genre space. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, you and I met off of on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just Twitter, amazing. That Twitter's I, been such an incredible, I mean, I, I oh, it's not called Twitter anymore, but it was Twitter when we met. So that's accurate. It's Twitter. <laughs> It's been such it's been such an incredible platform, especially in the wake of Picard, um, where like it's just developed such an amazing creative supportive community on there um, of like really wonderful uh, folks who've been really like vocal about their questions and their their enthusiasm for the season. And so it's been great to meet people online and then to meet people here. So thank you for having me. Gosh, I love it. This last season was really special because I have an 11 year old. So I'll speak personally for my family. So my 11 year old Atticus, this was his first time watching a whole season of Star Trek, like ever together. And then we watched it with my folks. So we're uh, three generations watching um, Picard and the joy and excitement of going week to week and all of our family meal conversations day after day. <laughs> Oh my God, how crazy is Vatic? And what do you think is going to happen? How are they going to get out of it? And we started to just pool our speculation of like, well, I think this is going to happen. I think that's going to happen. And just to the credit of the incredible imaginations of your whole room, that like how often we just had no idea or we were wrong about our speculations and uh, we're on the edge of our seat the whole time. Oh, thank you. No, I mean, like you said, I mean, the credit goes to the room. We had a terrific room of of writers really from all levels from like you know first season writers to super super seasoned writers um all of whom like harmonized very very well uh to create something i think i think um you know was really special and something i know we're all really proud of so it was so special and it for at least as the observer you know you're in your audience it really seemed like a season that was all about family and yeah. relations 
um, and the big family questions that arose during this season. Did you have discussions about theme and some of the bigger, you know, things you were going to tackle uh, over the course of it? Or was it more like in the weeds, nitty gritty, just arising from these characters and their journeys? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the theme certainly just there was an inherent theme in the story in terms of, um, you know, Picard learning the truth about himself and this, his relationship to Jack and learning that he has a son out there. And so there was a lot to be said about fatherhood, but also that experience of reuniting with with people who are fundamentally who were at one time fundamentally a part of your dna as a human being and and having fallen out of touch with them and then rediscovering them um and then really wanting to explore that the the degrees to which people do or do not change um you know over time i think we we all um especially as we get older um have had those experiences even if it's something as routine and day-to-day as like you go to a high school reunion of like these people were my best friends for, you know, four, eight, 10, 12 years of my life. Um, and I haven't seen them. And yet what of them is fundamentally still who they are? What of them has been changed by the circumstances of life? And then how much can we really rewrite our own, you know, DNA as people? So um, that really was something that we wanted to hammer home because we knew we had a responsibility to take these sort of iconic, legendary characters and evolve them um in a way where they could contribute new things say new things um but at the same time not feel like we've um just kind of thrown out who they were so we had to honor those characters why people love them continue those journeys but also say something new about them um and so that that theme that theme of sort of growth and reconnection um, really did sort of uh, come out of just the inherent idea for the season. So love that so much. In the room itself, do you have like a Star Trek researcher there? Like, how are you accessing these? You know, d- decades going back, yeah. especially if Next Generation, which is such a legacy show. Yeah, we do have. Uh, you know, there is an infrastructure there of sort of seasoned, educated folks who are like baked into the memory alpha DNA. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they know the history. They've got that encyclopedic knowledge. Um, but even you know, with that, there are you know a number of other Star Trek shows uh, happening at the same time, uh, and so even just discovering that you know a story for example that you've gone down the road on you've written scripts about and then to discover something on prodigy or discovery might mirror that um that creating those channels of communication in the star trek universe is is a difficult thing um but there's a really great team of people uh who's there to support that infrastructure and talk to one another and make sure that we're not you know treading the same path or um you know, uh, uh, making huge canonical errors, uh, which uh, I think I think we're, we've been able to avoid so far. So that's fantastic. Yeah. What was it like producing your own episodes of this of, of this show? Because this is something that's really up for consideration with the writers' strike right yeah. now. Is the importance of this you know tradition of writers being able to go to set, produce their episodes, and how did your uh, I guess what my question is, is like, how did your script evolve from going to actually writing it all the way through to producing your episode and working with these actors? Right. 
And well, you know, it's interesting, the importance of learning, the importance of having writers on set to produce and teaching that craft um, is so multifaceted in terms of all the hats you have to wear. So for example, on any given day, I might be on set producing an episode that I didn't write a word of, uh, you know, and so the first sort of responsibility um, in that instance is you've got to know all the material back to front, regardless of whether you wrote it or not. Cause it's really easy when you're in the weeds of working on a script, say that falls in the middle of a season, the script before you or after you comes in, you don't give it a deep read cause you're just, I got to finish mine. Uh, and then all of a sudden you find yourself on set producing an episode. If you don't know each scene in the script you're producing. So you, you have to sort of, that's just the first ball to keep your eye on is you might not always be producing your material. Um, and then, you know, when you are, obviously you can bring the wealth of intention that you had when writing it. You can, you can talk to the actors about, you know, not just the narrative, uh, placement or nature of the scene and all the, the details that inform their choices, but you can tell them maybe the personal stories, um, for this monologue was inspired by this event in my life. And, um, and, and that, you know, often helps them and fuels them and they can connect to them. So, um, you know, it, 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 and, and then just, you know, you, you will find throughout the course of production that, you know, in the middle of an episode that you've written to a certain, say, budget specification or schedule um, thinking, you know, someone will throw a wrench in there. Someone will come and say, this seems too expensive or this actor's not available. And suddenly you have to think on your feet uh, and really, you know, uh, uh, really sort of um, develop the muscle uh, of saying, okay, what scenes don't we need? What could be said with a look instead of a monologue because we don't have time to shoot this? Or, um, you know, how do we relay this information in the same set with the same people, but without this actor? Like, it's puzzle solving 24-7. Um, but, you know, hopefully if you've done your prep on the front end and you've written to the uh, either um, excesses or limitations of the show, depending on, you know, uh, whether you're a huge budget show or a small budget show, um, you can you can absolutely, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it just becomes about the day-to-day -day maintenance. And then working with directors. I see there's a question. Um, the directors come in very early on. They prep their episode. Uh, and you will be with them. Hopefully, if you're assigned an episode from beginning to end, you'll be with them all the way. Um, so it really becomes a team collaboration with yourself and the directors. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, the directors, because they're coming into shows that they're not with 24-7. They're just episodic gig workers, you know. And so, yeah, a director may have directed an episode last season and the season before. But when they come into the process and they're directing episode six of your season, they're not versed in the lore that's come before or the emotion. And so you really have to keep them on point and say, here's the context of each scene and make sure that, you know, they're visually communicating uh, and emotionally communicating, you know, with the actors and creating these moments that they don't necessarily have all the context for. So um, you have to very sort of succinctly uh, and without making the directors feel overly limited because they, they want to feel free to do what they do and bring what they bring to the table, um, explain to them, you know, so all of those things factor into, to, uh, you know, from just tapping at a keyboard to, you know, watching a final cut. And that's not even including post. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders 
no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How long does it take to get an episode in the can? Uh, well, you know, it, uh, it depends, right? So, you know, on something like 911, for instance, 911 was, uh, you know, an interesting experience because that's 18 episodes a season. There is not a lot of downtime between the end of a season and the beginning of next. So right. you are writing and shooting literally at the same time. And so on 911, there is no, for example, there's there was no um, room to massage or develop or take weeks with the scripts a lot of times it was uh yeah this thing shoots next week uh we're behind in the last episode uh we got to crank this one out uh in five days uh who's got an idea <laughs> you know and then um you know the writers will will split up episodes or acts of episodes um and it becomes more of a team effort to get something done um of quality but also at speed Yes. Um, and then, so, you know, there were episodes of 911 that were written in three days, right before they prepped, Good. shot in 11 days, posted in, say, two weeks, and within four to six weeks of having written an episode, it's on TV. Um, Picard, on the other hand, uh, even though we did move it a clip, we had a lot more time to sort of sit with the scripts and, and each individual writer sort of bring their voice to it and... Um, you know, and so you, you'd have weeks with scripts and sometimes if you were lucky. Um, and then you would be able to sort of sit on set uh, and, you know, be there for the two weeks and then, you know, really be in post and have. And then there was still a year from that point to when we aired. So it depends on the show. You know, um, it depends on whether you're a network show, whether you're a streamer, whether you're procedural, whether you're a 10 episode drama. So it, it, that varies a lot, quite a bit. As a co-EP on this show, what percentage of your time was spent in the writer's room versus on set versus um, in the editing bay? Well, we had, so uh, we had done seasons two and three back to back. Season two was very heavily a COVID season. Mm. So when we were coming out of season two, we, we had budget limitations. We certainly had time limitations. So Whereas, for example, you would have normally 20 weeks, sometimes a full 20 weeks before production even starts um, on a show uh, to, you know, really, you know, develop your scripts, have, you know, be in the room, come up with your story. We had like 10 weeks before we were going to start shooting um, to go from no pages uh, to as many pages as you can get in that time. And so, you know, for those of, of, of you who may be familiar with the season, the first four episodes, for example, are kind of a little mini movie. And that was done really intentionally, right? Yeah. Because we were like, we need to get something to production. But and we want to tell it. That was where the, the jellyfish from the nebula. Yeah, was. yeah yes. exactly. Oh, my God, it made me cry. It was incredible. So it's, it's kind of like we broke a little four-part story that we could write, generate really quickly to start getting scripts to production. So production could start prepping. And then as we're sort of starting to write five, six, seven, now we're starting to film. And so your attention is really torn between, okay, you know, one writer can't be in the room today. They got to be on set. Um, so it, 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 it was a really unique experience in terms of trying to juggle, um, 
this sort of like creative openness of being in the room and, and really devoting your thought process to the characters and the emotion and the story. And then the other part of you that's like, I got to run to set and solve a, a problem with, you know, whatever production catering, uh, an actor's got a question about a note. So it was a little like a Benny Hill sketch of just like, you know, running from one room into another. Um, but it was a unique experience and, and I think turned out pretty well in the end. That's amazing. It sounds yeah. like an episode of Larry Sanders, the way yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> make it all come together. You know, something that struck me from seeing this season and, you know, with Star Trek in general, because there's such a devotion to um, equality and to um, consideration of everybody working together as a team. It's such a yeah. It's such an amazing show about teamwork all the way back through, you know, Star Trek from the beginning. Absolutely. And this season, we have women take roles that we've really never seen before. And that was so touching to me. It stood out so completely as a total paradigm shift of, oh my gosh, now we have these women on the bridge and they're possibly <laughs> becoming captains. Right. And they're, you know, now in this extraordinary leadership position that, I mean, going back to Janeway, for sure, we had seen then. Um, but then we we have it here. What was happening behind the scenes with some of those decisions in the writer's room with those particular characters? Sure. Um, uh, to that specific question, you know, we, we had a, a number of really terrific um, female writers uh, on the staff who obviously brought their perspectives, advocated um, for the inclusion of, of issues and storylines that were really important to them. But I think the best way to address that question for us has always been just tell a good character story first. Um, and I, I think if you if you sit down with the sort of specific agenda of how do we build, whether it's minority inclusion or female forward inclusion, that has to be part of your thinking, but it can't be all of your thinking. Because if you are just telling a great story and you are just treating humans as humans, a lot of times you'll find you've you've addressed these issues and you've spoken to these um, these issues without really consciously having planned to do that um, because you've you've just been genuine and human and um, you know Twelve Monkeys was really interesting for example we we had worked on I think we were in the middle of season three of Twelve Monkeys and there started to be all these articles coming out that were like, this is a really terrific feminist uh, show. It has really strong female characters who are in command of their own stories, who are in service to nobody else but their own plot lines. Um, and what was weird, it, it was like suddenly you discovered, it was like walking a tightrope and then um, suddenly looking down. Uh, because oh. we, we weren't thinking of it. You know, we like we had men in the room, we had females in the room. Uh, we, but we never sat and, and thought of anything, but just what's the best, most human thing, most empathetic, most emotional thing for this character to want or explore or go after? Um, how do we not make characters sort of small in the shadow of other characters? Uh, and then all of a sudden, this thing that we had never sort of sat down with specific intent to say, we're going to be a great, you know, feminist show is now getting praised for something that we were certainly very grateful um, people were acknowledging, but really it's just be true to your characters. Like, you know, you don't, seven of nine is a strong enough character 
given you know her whole narrative history, given what she wants, given the emotional complexity of you know a robot and human, there's so much there to play with um, that's just fundamentally human. Um, that if you just treat that first, the rest follows. If this is a long-winded answer to your question. Oh, it makes so much sense. And, and you know, in Rafi and, and Dr. Crusher, so many strong, strong women uh, in in the show. What's next? Do we know yet what could possibly be happening or coming from this? So, like, does Terry have any plans to do anything more? Terry, I mean, I, I, those who are fans and follow along on Twitter, obviously, you know, Terry has said... There is a show in his head called Star Trek Legacy that would continue this timeline and some of these characters and sort of remix a lot of the things that we love about um, the sort of Berman 90s era of uh, of Star Trek. Um, you know, all that was percolating before the strike, uh, which kind of just put a giant uh, pause on everything. So certainly I, I think the writers and Terry especially are very hopeful that on the other side of it, there'll be a path forward the fans have been remarkably supportive um, in terms of uh, in terms of showing up and and demanding and asking for more uh, in this universe with these characters. So we have ideas about where it can go. We know who we'd like to visit and explore um, and bring back into the show. And um, uh, but yeah, it's so the hope is um, that we'll be able to. But you know, there's a whole business reality. As all of you know, um, that that factors into it when you're deciding what's next for a franchise. Um, and then now coming out of the strike, I think there's going to be even more pressure, uh, you know, budgetarily um, from studios to not say, "Okay, we're going to go, we're going to go do five two hundred million dollar Star Trek shows this year." Um, whereas maybe there there'd be a riskier appetite to do that in previous uh, pre-strike days. Um, I think you're going to see studios really going look, either we got to do five $50 million Star Trek shows or we've got to do one big 200, but we're not going to do, gone are the days of, you know, multiple giant budget shows. So I think there's going to be more pickiness um, and hopefully we can be a part of that and we can be one of the things that, that gets picked. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed yeah, for all of you, <laughs> absolutely. You know, with a franchise like Star Trek, how much do you consider um, the discussions or requests of the fans? Uh, it, it's a two-way, it's, it's a double-edged sword, you know, um, because you do want to go on Twitter and you want to listen and you want to make sure, you know, you're giving the fans what they want. You know, one of the aspects of this uh, season of Star Trek, for example, was revisiting... Uh, because you're telling stories with these iconic characters, you're going to revisit some old familiar faces, some old familiar locations. Um, and for as many people on Twitter who love those moments, who, uh, you know, eat it up uh, and and who who understood the emotional mathematics of why we included those things and, yes. and how it serves the character story. There are, uh, you know, just as many people on Twitter who are going to go fan service, right? They're just going to say it's fan service, it's lazy. Um, and so you have to walk a line between that's our job, servicing the fans, giving fans what they want, um, but doing it in a sophisticated, complex, emotionally true way uh, and not just pandering, you know? And so we do really listen to what the fans want. And then other times, sometimes the fans just want things that um, they don't necessarily know aren't 
the right uh they, they they don't necessarily know what they want you know or they think they want something and you're like we're going to try to give it to you another way you know um fans this season for example i think there were there were a subsection of fans that really wanted us to continue the story of rafi and seven and their romantic and their romantic relationship from season two which had begun and the nature of the story itself and where those characters were had separated them physically so they weren't going to get to share a lot of screen time and it was really important to us as writers because each of those characters had unresolved issues in themselves and in their own storylines seven's identity issues and rafi's issues with her family that we felt well if we were going to continue to explore that they need to heal those things first um and so to us, it was like, we need to put these characters on tracks where at the end of it, they will be in a better, more solid place to then explore that story in future stories. But you got to get them there first. You can't just force them together simply because Twitter wants it. So, you know, it, it has to be done right. It has to be done creatively. It has to be done uh, with respect to the characters, but also with respect to the fans too. So it's a, it's a complicated calculation a lot to juggle and yeah. balance and a lot of responsibility i'd love to hear a little bit more about the writers room i have so many sure. who are aspiring television writers you know for whom their dream is working on shows like the ones that you've been on can you talk to us about what makes a great writers room absolutely um and and i think this is something i i've always said that that tara metallis our showrunner um who i worked with on 12 monkeys as well is exceptionally good at um doing which is you, you've got to you've got to play the orchestra right you've got to put together a great symphony of instruments and so you know in any given show when if, if as a showrunner you're staffing that show you want to you want to bring people on who have or are excel at each of the qualities that the show is going to require and so for star trek it's you need big thirty-five thousand foot sci-fi story thinkers then you need really great character writers. Then you need folks who know how to write action scenes. And then you need some folks who know how to write comedy. And when you put those people in a room and everybody puts their fingerprints on every episode, um, the episodes are better for it. Like, so I, I think what we had and what's really important is if, you know, once you have figured out uh, at a at a showrunner level, the identity of the show and the tone and flavor of the story you're trying to tell, it's not just about going and getting a sort of random assortment of talented writers. Like, if you've got a room of 10 Aaron Sorkins, great, your show will have the best dialogue in the world, but, you know, is anybody thinking about story, comedy, uh, the action scenes, the whatever? So um, it, it, we had an extraordinary balance of folks who would sit around the table and all add their own unique skill set and really elevate the script beyond what sort of any one writer, if they'd just been given that episode to break, um, might have done on their own. And so I, I think it's about, from a writer perspective, when you're thinking about a room, don't necessarily go into a room thinking about I have to be great at everything. You don't have to be a multi-tool. Like you can, you know, hopefully over time, uh, wherever you are in your in your process, whether it's just from writing a thousand spec things um, or whether it's from staffing in a dozen rooms, you will come to understand you're, you might be good at everything, but you will excel at one or two things. 
Um, and it is great to to be, uh, you know, to be um, the person who can contribute that piece and then someone else contributes something else. Like my favorite moments in a room aren't when I pitch something and everyone goes, great, perfect, no notes. My favorite moments in a room are when I'll say, how about this, right? And I'll present an idea and someone will go, you know what, how about half of that? But we'll take this part and then I'll put this part on top of it. And suddenly you've made something that's better than the thing that you pitch. Those are the great moments in the room. And those are hopefully what you've built a room that can achieve. Oh, that's so yeah. exciting. Um, with those who are aspiring to get into a room with the process between writing the best script that they can to be considered for that room and also the interview, what would enable a writer to maybe stand out from the pack to be able to be considered for shows like this? Sure. A hundred percent. I think this business is a relationship business. Um, and, you know, yes, when you get to the room, when you get assigned a script, do you have to be good on the page? Absolutely. If you don't have the the practice, the, the skill level to back up what you're trying to sell, um, you know, then obviously you have to keep working on that. You have to grind, you have to write, you have to create, and you will build that muscle eventually. But when it comes to getting hired, um, the, the, the biggest hurdle is you have to go into the room and just be a cool person, right? Like nobody, when you are, when you are assembling a room, you are assembling a Thanksgiving table, right? Like imagine the most chaotic Thanksgiving you've ever had sitting around your table, all your families arguing and foods flying and like that episode of the bear that just aired, right? Like it's that. And so you have to imagine that's going to be every day of my life for the next two years or year or however long the show goes. And so you really want to orchestrate and collect um, a, a group of people that are going to be kind and empathetic and um, funny and uh, caring and supportive of each other because every day your ego is going to be bruised. It's going to be hurt. You're, you're going to be pitched over, talked over. Uh, you're going to be told, no, you're going to write a scene. The showrunner's not going to like it. You're going to feel like you're not good at this. Uh, you're going to go back. You're going to make it better. Um, and, and so that's hard enough to do with a great group of people. Um, it's possible to do with a group of assholes. So, um, you know, I think the thing you have to do when you show up for an interview or when you're talking to showrunners or you're building relationships is first off, just go in, be yourself, be casual. Like, um, you know, don't, don't try to be car salesman about yourself. Just be you. Have a point of view on the genre, on the story, on the material. Um, and then also make it personal. You know, tell these stories about yourself. The, I got the job at... Star Trek, not because I came in and I knew every little, now granted I knew Terry before, but when I was meeting with Secret Hideout and the executives there who ultimately have to say yes to you as well, um, you know, it wasn't because I knew every little bit of Star Trek lore. It wasn't because I was the biggest nerd in the room. It was because I could tell them the story of when growing up, my mother went through a period of really ill health and my father, who was a blue collar policeman who didn't know anything about genre storytelling, knew Star Trek. He knew it from his childhood. It was the only language he had to communicate with his frightened, unsure, unsure son. And so he showed me the original series. 
And we watched it together and we build that shared experience. And I told that story in the room. And that's ultimately what gets you the job. It's you, it's your personality, it's your humanity. It's the emotional experience that you show you can bring to the table. It's not, um, here are my words and here's my knowledge. Those things are important, but they're not the most important. That's a good point. Again, coming from the heart, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, coming from the heart. And I often am working on teaching my students how to make those connections in an organic and like you said, casual way, because this industry is not formal. Yeah. Uh, looking for who can who who I want to get in the trenches with, you who's gonna have my back and how are we gonna work together? How can we agree to disagree? All of those yeah. types of things that arise. It's really interesting. Um, how did you get into this business? What drew you in to, to writing? This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Um, I was always a writer. I always enjoyed writing prose and short stories and all that stuff. And um, and and I was always a genre nerd. I was like, I loved comic books. I loved sci-fi, sci-fi, horror at, at an early age. Um, and I and I always thought like, oh, maybe I'll write like a book one day or a novel. But um, I was really fortunate to sort of two things collided in, in my childhood was I, when I went to high school, I started reading plays and I became really interested, not in acting or even directing, but I just really loved uh, theater writing. I loved like the dialogue and the sharpness of like say what you want about his work, like a David Mamet and the way that he, you know, sort of meticulously creates rhythms of dialogue, uh, you know, Sam Shepard, all, like all those amazing playwrights. Um, Virginia Woolf is one of the all-time great plays. Um, best, one of the best pieces of writing I've ever read. And, uh, and then that coincided with the rise of the 1990s Miramax independent movie, right? Where you'd get your Soderberghs and your Tarantinos and your Shane Blacks and like, writers with really specific voices and those two things at the same time made me really interested in the craft of writing um and then uh i think it was right around the time that i was graduating high school into college west wing came out and for whatever reason i was just like entranced by the dialogue in that show i should not have liked it i wasn't interested in politics i was 18 19 years old um that i was not the demo for that show but for something i was just man, it's emotional. It's funny. It's well-written. It's got all of the things that I love from theater and great movies. Um, and then we're not supposed to say his name anymore, um, but Joss Whedon took a lot of those things with something like Buffy um, and applied that level of auteurship and writing and specificity of voice to genre, which I loved. And so it opened this door for me where I'm like, Oh my God, you can, you can write really sophisticated, whether it's emotional, whether it's banter, whether it's twee, whether it's sentimental, you can do all of that in the genre space and elevate that beyond just, you know, say, uh, just comic book base level writing. So all of those things got, got me to a point where I was like, well, maybe I'll start writing some pilots and I'll try to see if I can do this and combine voice and, 
and genre and I, and so i wrote you know and i did i i wrote a few and they were fine and and i wrote some more and they got a little better um and i moved to la and i i got my job my career in marketing and advertising so i started was always a big gamer as well and so i, I got a job for microsoft uh and i was doing pr for all of their video games and i did that for a couple of years as i was just writing for myself and when i made the decision that i wanted to be a writer part of that decision was not okay, I want to be a writer, I'm going to go do that. The question then becomes, how am I going to do that, right? It's an impossible industry to even get yourself into in the first place, let alone regardless of your talent. So I always believe you got to put yourself where lightning can strike. Um, you got to put yourself where lightning can strike. You got to cover yourself in tinfoil and hold up the biggest metal rod you can. And then you just got to hope, right? Because so much of it is luck, but it's not going to happen if you're not where it happens. So uh, I moved to LA and I made the jump from uh, marketing and PR to the entertainment side because I knew a lot of reporters. I knew I could make just as much writing about video games and playing video games or watching movies and reviewing movies as I would shilling for them. But I also knew it would put me in a position to meet executives, to meet celebrities, to uh, to, to just learn more about where I knew I wanted to go beyond that. And it was, it was in that time, um, that I met the author Clive Barker, who I loved growing up and, um, Clive became a dear friend, eventually a mentor of mine. And he, uh, he, he brought me on to write two movies for him. Um, and those were my first sort of professional gigs. Um, and, uh, and, and then he introduced me to Stephen King who optioned me a story of his and, um, I, I, uh, adapted that and then that got me my agent. And then, um, and then while I was working as a journalist, I had met, uh, Travis Fickett, who was working with me, who was Terry Metalis's writing partner. And then so many years later, when they sold their show and 12 monkeys became real, they knew me, remembered me, picked up the phone and brought me, brought me on. So it was just a very conscious effort to, um, I got to work on the craft while I'm also working on the strategy of uh, how am I going to get there? And then just putting myself around people and in spheres where success could happen and then getting lucky that it did. Um, so it's, it's a lot of calculation, but it's also just a lot of just good fortune. That, and so, so true and such great advice as well. Would you give it that advice to writers today that they should move to Los Angeles? It's, it's tricky. I mean, uh, I, I, yes, I think ultimately to start your career, you probably have to be here um, because it's, it's, it becomes about so much of it is FaceTime, you know, I, like literal face, not like Apple. Yes. FaceTime, but literally like <laughs> really breathing know. the same areas. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just trying to get in front of people to make yourself a known quantity. Um, and, and to, and a lot of that happens through, you know, drinks. It happens through lunches. It happens through coffees. Um, I think at a certain point, probably more in the feature industry than the TV industry, you may be freed up to then after you've had some success, leave, um, go back to wherever you're from, wherever you want to live and hang your hat. And then, you know, come in from the occasional meeting, you know, but feature writers, for example, you know, the really successful ones, 
they don't have to be here. They're going to go off for four months and work on a draft and make their their yearly, you know, just on that one thing. And those are for the most successful of them. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, it, maybe you can create a path for yourself where you can leave L.A. eventually. But it's certainly in television, we're not there yet. Um, the pandemic, I think, teased us with this idea of like Zoom rooms, but th those are wildly, in my opinion, unsuccessful. They don't work. Um, they don't produce good results. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think it, it, it does help to be here. Um, but to you also, if you can, and if you have a way to orchestrate your path to be here in a way that puts you adjacent to the things you need to interact with, like if you're just going to come to, you know, LA and a bad version, like work at a Starbucks, um, and just go home at night and write your specs with no real plan about, you know, how to meet someone. So, you know, a lot of that, it starts on Twitter. You can make relationships on Twitter. You can reach out, you can befriend and start conversations with creatives. Uh, and then when you physically get out here, you know, and you're paying your bills and you're set up, you could say, Hey, can I take you for a coffee and ask for your advice? Um, you know, and, and you can try to build relationships that way. There's no easy path to do it, but I think you do physically have to be here for a period. Yeah, great answer. My last question for you is one I always ask my guests on this show because the show is called Hollywood Wolfpack and I'm all about <laughs> helping my students find their wolf pack. So many yeah. of them come in and they're lone wolfing and going, oh, where are my people? Who's in your wolf pack and what advice do you have for others who are looking to find their own wolf pack in this industry? Well, Terry Metalis is is a dear friend of mine, and he created Twelve Monkeys, and he created um, shouldn't say created, but he he was the showrunner on Picard, and um, and and when I met Terry, like I said, I met Terry through his writing partner at the time, Travis Fickett, and we were just me and Travis were journalists together. Terry was an assistant at Star Trek. Um, you know, he was uh, he he was working for Brian Braga, and he was. Um, you know, I think he he worked for Voyager and 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 uh, uh, you know just he had ambitions like we all did, um, but we supported each other. We read each other's stuff. We shared it. You're as likely to find success in this business because of somebody else than you are to build it by yourself. Like, uh, I'm sorry, m m far more likely. This is a team effort. Um, you know, and, and it is entirely about relationships and it's not about a lot of it is about the relationships that will pay off in ways you can't even think of years from now. Like, and so it's really important for as strategic as you are to be sincere in the approach. Like I, I became friends with Travis and Terry, not because I needed something from them. Um, but because I appreciated them. I liked their work. I liked who they were. They were good people. And as friends, we said, we're going to support each other. We're going to support each other's journeys. We're going to read each other's material. We're going to give critical feedback. Uh, we're going to go out, uh, you know, when one of us has gotten rejected and buy the other one a beer. Uh, and, you know, and, and those relationships pay off down the line. And that will be true as you become successful with executives. You know, um, I take executives out who I like and I get along with very well all the time, just for a drink with no agenda other than just to say, let's catch up. How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Because six months from now, when that executive has a project, they're going to think of me before they're going to think of the writer that never bothered to do that. And so um, I think keeping really sincere 
uh, genuine human relationships is the key to making this work. And you will be, you. it may be you that succeeds and then you get to help the person that was there for you. Uh, you may have been the person who was there for someone that then sends the elevator back down for you. And in your career, that dynamic may shift. Like the person that you're working for today may work for you tomorrow. So um, the show empathy, be human, be sincere. Uh, don't always be working an angle um, because I think people can smell that. Um, but uh, but I, I think you do have to be strategic. I think that needs to factor into your decision-making process. Chris Monfet, you've been a fantastic special guest for us today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, of course. Follow you or keep up with what you're doing. I'm I'm on Twitter at CW Monfet. Um, so you can follow me there, ask me questions, engage, talk Star Trek, nerd out. I'm always, I can always be found there. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Wolfpack. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please, Help our pack grow by sharing Hollywood Wolfpack with your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and write us a review. Kaya loves hearing from you and reads them all. For more on Kaya and the Entertainment Business School, visit entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Until next week, remember, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack.